Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. On Rosh Hashanah, the heavenly court convenes, the books are opened, and everyone on planet Earth receives an inscription in the Book of Life or the Book of Death. That's why the traditional greeting before Rosh Hashanah is, May you be inscribed for a sweet new year. It means, May you stay alive another 12 months. But the decision made on Rosh Hashanah is not final. The court debates the decision for 10 days. And during all 10 days, the gates of heaven remain open because the store is open for business. The judge is listening to the arguments and repentance, prayer, and acts of charity can overturn an evil decree, tip the scales of justice, and influence the court to record a name in the book of life for another 12 months of life. The decision is not final until the end of Yom Kippur, when the final shofar sounds and the gates of heaven close at the end of Nela. That moment is called the sealing. That's when the decisions are sealed. And that's why we say, may you finish sealed with a good inscription. This cosmic drama explains the awesome fearsomeness of the day. On Yom Kippur, we draw near to the Lord, as James, the brother of the Master, taught us. Draw near to Hashem, and He will draw near to you. Likewise, the prophets say, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, and He will return to you. Simon Peter says, You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Today, we acknowledge that we are sinners. Here is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that the Messiah Yeshua came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. So we draw near to the Lord, we return to the Lord, we turn back to the shepherd of souls, confessing our iniquity, transgression, and sin, and asking God for forgiveness, pardon, and atonement. We ask Him to forgive To forgive someone means to forfeit the right to retaliate, forfeiting the right to be angry. We ask him to pardon. To pardon someone means to release the person from the obligation to repay a debt or compensate for an injury or loss. We ask him to atone. To atone means to pay a ransom for the spiritual deficit incurred by the offense, a deficit which might create an obstacle between the sinner and Hashem or even cost a person his or her life. So we are asking God to forgive us that he should renounce his anger. We are asking God to pardon us that he should pardon us for our debts against heaven, those penalties and debts incurred by our sins. We are asking God to atone for us, that is, that he should expiate the spiritual deficit incurred by our offenses and ransom our lives. On Yom Kippur, we remind ourselves that we are in need of all three, and we intercede also for our families, our loved ones, our community, the Messianic Jewish community, the Jewish nation, the whole body of Messiah and the whole world. Today, we hunger and thirst 
not for the bread that is not food, nor the water that does not satisfy, but for the bread of life. If a person eats it, he will not hunger again. And the water of life, if a person drink of it, he will thirst no more. On Yom Kippur, we experience the nearness of God in a way that goes beyond the ordinary sense of God's presence. And like the flame that dances upon the wick of the candle, our souls leap towards him. We ourselves get caught up in the transcendent worship of the angels, and we become like angels, raptured along with the acclamation of Kedusha, holy, 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 who was, who is, who is to come. Yom Kippur is our annual near-death experience on which we anticipate our homecoming. On Yom Kippur, we plan for the day we will leave this earthly body, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. On Yom Kippur, we plan for the day we will leave this earthly body behind, and for the day we will be clothed with a heavenly body. About a week ago, I received a piece of feedback from the current issue of Messiah magazine regarding a short article we printed that introduces the High Holidays and Yom Kippur. The inquiry is short. The reader says, I read with interest the article on Yom Kippur in the current Messiah magazine. I am puzzled by the lack of any reference to the impact of the cross of Jesus on how believers understand and celebrate Yom Kippur. Can you help me? I don't know if I can help. Our master once said to his disciples, I speak to them in parables, because though they have eyes to see, they don't see, and though they have ears to hear, they don't hear. To you, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have been granted, but to them it has not been granted. I keenly feel a similar frustration. I didn't write back. Maybe I still will. I rarely reply to email inquiries sent to the ministry because if I did, that's about all that I would do. Thank God there are other people in the ministry now who take care of that sort of thing. But if I was to write back, I would find myself utterly at a loss for words. Where to begin? I take it as a sincere question. The question seems to be, if I am understanding it correctly, why hasn't the cross of Jesus impacted the way that Messianic Jews understand and celebrate Yom Kippur? The implication behind the question is that if we understood that the death of Jesus upon the cross atones for our sins, we would not be practicing the rituals and ceremonies of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Let me take a stab at answering this. Obviously, I cannot speak for all Messianic Jews, or any Messianic Jews for that matter, but I can speak for us at Beth Emanuel in beautiful historic Hudson, Wisconsin. The cross absolutely impacts the way we understand Yom Kippur, or perhaps better stated, Yom Kippur impacts the way we understand the cross. The epistle to the Hebrews explains this concept at length. The writer of the epistle compares the death and resurrection of Yeshua to the Yom Kippur ceremony in the temple. In his analogy, Yeshua acts as the heavenly high priest in the heavenly temple, but he is also the sacrifice that works atonement in that temple. It's a twofold image. We see him as priest and sacrifice, presenting his own blood, as it were, 
as he makes the way into the holy of holies of the heavenly temple by virtue of his resurrection and ascension to those supernal realms. From that perspective, the temple on earth and all the Yom Kippur ceremonies associated with it here on earth are a reflection of those heavenly realities. The temple on earth is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly temple, which means the entire ceremony and observance of Yom Kippur in the temple on earth is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly service of our master in the heavenly temple. Therefore, when we disciples of Yeshua observe Yom Kippur, our eyes turn from the earthly observance of the festival to the higher and transcendent temple above where our master, having completed the atonement and put away sins once for all, is no longer presented upon the heavenly altar year after year, but now remains in the Holy of Holies, seated in concealment at the right hand of the throne of glory. We stand below like Israel assembled in the temple's courtyards, breathlessly awaiting the emergence of the high priest from the Holy of Holies. Mare Kohen, the appearance of the high priest, speaks to us of our own wait for the Messiah, not just on Yom Kippur, but every day, as Maimonides says, though he tarry, I await him every day. Upon the Messiah and his atoning merit, we pin all of our hopes, as the Yom Kippur liturgy explains, for we have no merit of our own. If not for Yom Kippur, its symbolism and substance, the meaning and significance of the cross would largely become a theological abstraction, a vague notion about vicarious suffering or some cosmic ransom price, and it would become a point of dogma to which we must agree without real understanding. But the observances and traditions of Yom Kippur, both the ancient observances in the temple and the modern observance in synagogue, illuminate for us the work of Messiah, his descent, his suffering, his death, his ascent, his exaltation, and his atoning work on behalf of the nation. They root them in the reality of human experience and interaction with the divine in tangible terms that we can understand. The temple teaches us about holiness, God's transcendence, his desire to dwell in our midst, the obstacles to that relationship, our separation from him, and the procedure and mechanism which must be undertaken to facilitate the relationship. The services of Yom Kippur transport us back in time to a time when the temple still stood, while at the same time elevating us to behold the heavenly temple and to know the God before whom we stand. Within the festival of Yom Kippur, we encounter the entire conceptual framework upon which the gospel proclamation of Yeshua's death and resurrection is built. Yom Kippur is chiefly concerned with the problem of sin, not just the sin of an individual, but the cumulative sin of the nation. The cumulative sin of the nation creates an obstacle to God's presence in the midst of Israel. Yom Kippur offers a solution through the ministration of the high priest, the sacrifice of sin offerings, and the expiation of sin in the presence of God on the merit of that high priest service and the application of the blood of those sin offerings. Through this service, the nation finds atonement for this cumulative weight of sin, 
And the obstacle to God's presence in the midst of the nation is happily removed. The whole point of Yom Kippur is the forgiveness of Israel, the salvation of the nation. The apostles interpreted the suffering and death of the Messiah along the same lines. The problem is sin. The solution is the heavenly high priest, the enormous merit of his sacrifice, and the efficacy of his intercession before God in the heavenly holy of holies. But I think every biblically literate disciple of Yeshua knows and understands most of that. I'm going to speculate that the thing that truly puzzled this reader was not the significance of Yom Kippur as regards the death and resurrection of Yeshua, but rather, if we accept all of that as true, why would we still be doing Yom Kippur at all? According to the standard replacement theology interpretation of the New Testament, the work of Christ canceled and replaced the Torah and its ceremonies. Under that perspective, it would seem reasonable to suppose that if Christ's death and resurrection atones for sins, we don't need the annual observance of Yom Kippur to do that. On this basis, the church does not practice Yom Kippur at all. That's a staggering thought. True, Gentile Christians being Gentiles are under no legal obligation to fast on Yom Kippur or to observe the Jewish calendar at all. But I'm not talking about a legal obligation. I'm talking about the hot, burning center of Yeshua faith. It astonishes me to realize that there are disciples of Yeshua who don't even know what Yom Kippur is. I think, what a great loss. What an enormous loss to the body of the Messiah. Why doesn't the church observe Yom Kippur? Why wouldn't every disciple be eager to participate in this festival, which is so clearly a shadow of things to come and the substance of Messiah? The answer? Because the church presumes that Christ's atonement renders the fasting, confession, contrition, and prayer of the holy day obsolete and redundant. This confusion results from a conflation between the heavenly temple and the earthly temple, and a conflation of this world and the world to come. To clear up that confusion, I will have to point you back to my series of teachings on the epistle to the Hebrews. I don't want to go into it right now, especially since I have already taught through Hebrews twice in this community. And if you are genuinely curious about it, there's 46 audio teachings waiting for you on the website. For most of the last decade, I've been promising to write a book on the subject too, and that could still happen. If God is merciful with me, hears my prayers today, grants my petition, and offers me another year of life on this planet. It comes down to this. There's an enormous difference between this world and the world to come. I have every confidence that the death and resurrection of Yeshua atones for my sins before the throne of glory. When I stand in the final judgment, I fully intend to lean completely upon his merit and virtue. When they ask me, why should you be shown mercy? I will reply, for no other reason than this, that God so loved the whole world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have a portion in the world to come. I hope that all of you share that same confidence. 
I hope that every one of you knows that when the day of judgment comes, you can absolutely rely upon the merit and virtue of our master and the grace and favor he attained through his sacrificial suffering upon that cruel Roman cross. I put my hope in nothing less than Yeshua and his righteousness, through whom we have the forgiveness of sins. But when it comes to life here in this world, there are still consequences for sin. Death is still very much a reality. We are grimly reminded of that fact every day. Currently, the casualty count from COVID-19 stands at 4.5 million, over half a million in the United States. But with or without COVID-19, death is the inevitable end of every human being, whether we are godly or not, whether we are saved or not, whether we are disciples or not. Death is still a reality in this world. Yes, we can have complete hope and confidence that the soul of the sincere disciple of Yeshua will be welcomed into the Garden of Eden and attain to the resurrection of the dead. But which one of us can say that we have the same level of confidence that we will live to see another year? That we will live to celebrate Yom Kippur again? Or that we will escape all consequences for our sins and misdeeds in the coming year? Yom Kippur is not calibrated for obtaining life in the afterlife. It's calibrated for keeping us alive in this life. Just as the priesthood conducted an annual Yom Kippur ceremony in the temple to annually deal with the accumulation of Israel's sin, uncleanness, and guilt, the Torah enjoins the individual members of the nation to undertake this day of fasting to seek God and ask Him for forgiveness and mercy. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you, to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Leviticus 16.30 Most people sort of muddle it all together, but the apostles were precise in their language. Yes, there is hope for eternal life and resurrection through the favor and grace that we can obtain by allegiance to Yeshua. But the one-time death of Yeshua does not correlate into a one-time only repentance from sin. Instead, the ongoing struggle with sin is part of what it means to be a disciple, alive in this world today. Repentance is a daily devotion. Our spiritual life within this earthly temple we call the human body requires regular maintenance, upkeep, and renewal. And there are no guarantees that we will not suffer in this lifetime. On the contrary, the New Testament rather assures us that we will. There's a general misconception that, since our sins are forgiven, there is no punishment or consequence for a believer in Yeshua whatsoever. That's not what the New Testament teaches at all. I challenge anyone who clings to the idea that sin is of no consequence to the believer to sit down with two highlighters and a copy of the New Testament. Start at Matthew and read to the end of Revelation. Every time you encounter a verse that unambiguously encourages you to rely on grace and to have no fear of the consequences of sin, highlight it in green. Every time you encounter a verse that enjoins you to confess and renounce sin or to repent and turn away from sin and to fear the consequences of sin, highlight it in yellow. After having completed this exercise, return back to the beginning and flip forward 
through the pages of your yellow-colored New Testament. In view of this, it seems all the more appropriate for a New Testament believer to participate in the Holy Festival of Yom Kippur, which, on the one hand, celebrates our confidence in salvation by pointing us toward the efficacious and atoning work of the Master on our behalf and on behalf of the nation, but on the other hand, points us to the very real need for personal repentance, community repentance, national repentance, and the need to beseech God for mercy on account of our sins. Some object to the way that God is depicted in the High Holidays as a stern king and a judge. You might object to the Yom Kippur imagery of God seated as a judge, scrutinizing our deeds and issuing a verdict to punish sin and reward righteousness. After all, Paul tells us that in Messiah, there is no condemnation. And the Gospel of John tells us that God is love and perfect love drives out all fear. But once again, we are conflating different realities. One of the things I sometimes hear from people who have crossed over, met God, and returned to tell the tale is that God is not at all like the God they thought they knew as depicted in religion. And for that reason, they typically avoid religion going forward, preferring to adopt a sort of ambiguous spirituality. Why is that? Does the Bible misrepresent God as a stern judge of sin when he's actually an all-accepting, all-forgiving love and light? No. I believe that this is another failure to distinguish between this world and that world. In this world, the world of concealment, sin is real and evil is real and death is real. In the presence of God, however, those things which rely upon the concealment of God for their existence cease to have any substance or real meaning. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of perfect light. So one gets the impression that there is no judgment for deeds committed in the body. But within this world, those things certainly do have substance, and there certainly is reward and punishment. That's the entire reason for being here. That's the whole point of being in the body. To be in this world where things like that matter, and choices matter, and right and wrong matter. That's why we came here. For that reason, before the final judgment, the soul is going to be returned to the body, and the body is going to be reunited with the soul so that they can be judged together. The blind man and the midget must be judged together because they colluded together to steal the apples from the king's orchard. In the final judgment, the Son of Man comes to render to every man according to what he has done. Revelation 22, verse 12. Yom Kippur rehearses that final judgment. And on Yom Kippur, we practice for that future day. A religion which teaches you that there is no consequence for sin neutralizes the fear of the Lord. That's a false religion. Cheap grace robs us of any sense of purpose. It paralyzes us with the sentiment, since Christ has accomplished it all, there's nothing for me to do but to accept what he has done. That's a paralyzing thought, which breeds religious apathy, indifference, and laziness. The message of the apostles was just the opposite. 
Their message was that the Messiah suffered for sinners, therefore sinners should repent, confess their sins, and cast their allegiance with the Messiah. And they should understand that suffering is part of atonement. It's tempting to believe that God doesn't really care about sin, or that as a disciple of Yeshua, you have a get-out-of-hell-free card that will get you out of all consequences for sin forever and ever, both in this world and the world to come. But Paul teaches that when it comes to the final judgment, even believers in Yeshua will be judged, receiving reward and or punishment for our deeds. Listen to this passage from the Yellow New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11 says, We have as our ambition, whether our spirit is at home in our human body or absent from our body, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of the Messiah, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What is the judgment seat of the Messiah? It's the throne of judgment. The Messiah acts as the visible agent of the unseen God. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In the Messiah, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. In the final judgment, he acts as the judge of the living and the dead, the judge of all humanity. It's the culmination, the final curtain call at the end of the world when all the actors are called back onto stage to make one last bow. At that time, the Messiah is seated in the place of the Ancient of Days and all humanity passes before him and he renders the verdicts of all flesh. They pass before him like a flock before a shepherd who separates the sheep from the goats so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul says that this same judgment applies also to believers in Yeshua, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Messiah, that might sound incongruous with the idea of relying upon the grace and favor of Yeshua instead of upon our own merit and virtue, but it's not. The idea is that the Messiah, as the judge, is able to tip the scales of judgment toward mercy for those he recognizes as his own, and that when the book of deeds is opened and our deeds are reviewed, those sins which we have confessed, renounced, and repented from in his name have been struck from the record. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the accusing spiritual rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Colossians 2.13-15 If that's the case, then we should be all the more diligent to root out sin, to confess it, 
renounce it and ask for its forgiveness now in this life, in this world, where it can still be dealt with. If you don't prepare your meal before the Sabbath begins, what will you eat on the Sabbath? Yom Kippur gives us the opportunity to do that. It gives us the opportunity to apply these precious truths about the Messiah's grace and forgiveness of sins to our very real iniquities, transgressions, and sins, and to deal with them here so that we don't need to deal with them there. The ancient ceremony of Yom Kippur is best understood as a national exorcism, a terrific struggle with the devil. On a personal level, it's a fight with the devil inside. And the son of David is the greatest, most powerful exorcist. But when the disciples could not cast out the demon, they asked him, Why were we unable to cast it out? Yeshua replied, Because this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Today is the day of prayer and fasting and the fight with the devil is on. Imagine the scene when you stand in judgment before the throne of glory and your accuser is there to recite every wicked thing you have ever done, every careless word you have ever uttered, every unkind thing you have ever said or done. Imagine this scene. Absolutely nothing is forgotten. Those who have crossed over and returned tell us that nothing is forgotten. Not a single detail. But when the accuser opens his mouth to speak, to recite the litany of charges, no words come out. Like Balaam trying to curse Israel. The curse is stolen right out of his mouth. Imagine the devil's disappointment to find that your sins and transgressions have all been struck from the record of the book of deeds. It will be like that moment in the temple courts when Yeshua said to the woman who had been caught in adultery, Woman, where are your accusers? Are there none left to testify against you or condemn you? And she replied, None, Master. To which he made the worthy reply, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what we are preparing for and prepping for every year when we go through the rituals and ceremonies and devotions of the high holidays. We go through the motions of standing in a a heavenly courtroom on trial before the throne of glory. We present our case. We confess our sins. We plead guilty. We ask the court for clemency. We appeal to the atonement ceremony executed by the high priest on behalf of the nation. Why do we do this every year? Because it's a rehearsal for the real day when we will all appear before the judgment seat of the Messiah. Imagine you are an Olympic athlete preparing for the 100-meter dash. How long does it take you to do the dash? Under 10 seconds if you're an Olympic athlete. How much time would you spend training for that 10 seconds? Imagine you're in a college course and it's time to take the final test. How long will it take you to complete the test? Under an hour. How long did you need to study to be able to complete the test? 
The final judgment when we stand before the judgment seat of Messiah is the most important moment of our existence. It's pretty much the culmination and the point of existence. It's so important that no one is allowed to miss it. Even if you've been dead for thousands of years, God is going to raise even the wicked from the dead, pluck their souls out of Gehenna, and plop those souls back in their bodies to stand present for this moment. Does it seem reasonable, then, to say, I don't need to prepare for that? Yom Kippur prepares us for that. It forces us to deal with sin. It pulls it out into the light, into the open, It exposes it to the light, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. The reader says, I am puzzled by the lack of any reference to the impact of the cross of Jesus on how believers understand and celebrate Yom Kippur. I'm not sure my answer would satisfy him, but I hope it satisfies you, my brothers and sisters, as we pray and fast together, because as our master says, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. May you finish with a good inscription, sealed in the book of life, life in this world and in the world of souls, in the kingdom, and life in the world to come, by the merit and virtue of our holy master, the son of David, the son of God. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. For here is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that the Messiah Yeshua came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Yeshua the Messiah might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul